Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. In this week's show, we look at someone who bootstrapped her company for two years before raising $5.5 million over the next couple years, growing to 400 employees, and then having the company implode before her eyes. Marin Kate is an entrepreneur who's been starting companies since she was 19 years old, and she started her company Zirtual in the 2010-2011 timeframe. Zirtual is essentially virtual assistants on a monthly retainer. So you, you paid a monthly price for a set number of dedicated hours from a virtual assistant. And the company became quite successful. She got to about a million dollar monthly run rate, so almost 12 million a year. And in 2015, they were you know burning a couple hundred thousand dollars a month. And at a certain point, they weren't able to raise that next round of funding and finances were, were screwed up. You'll hear us talk about it in this interview, but it's, it's a fascinating and frankly, a very, it's a devastating story to hear how virtual did implode and to hear Marin recount what that felt like. But she bounced back and we hear how she then went out to start her next company, Avra Talent, just a year later. And we dig into Marin's expertise and experience in hiring people. Um, she's had so much experience doing this. You can imagine, you know, having 400 employees, although you don't hire everyone yourself as a CEO, you certainly have a lot of influence on that process. And now Avra Talent is a recruiting agency in, in essence. So they have a, a really refined system of how to do this and how to vet candidates. And we dig into that towards the, the latter half of the interview. So without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Marin Kate. Marin Kate, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So folks have heard in the intro about, you know, this amazing growth story of Zirtual, but I want to go back to when you decided to raise money because you bootstrapped Zirtual for two years and then made the choice to raise money. You know, a lot of listeners to this podcast, I, if I were to break it down, I'd say 90% want to bootstrap or self-fund and there's around 10% in this microconf startup to the rest of us community that do raise funding. And they don't tend to want to go on the VC track, but they do, you know, raise half a million, quarter of a million from angels or from, you know, tiny seed, which is my accelerator. It's not binary in, in our space, you know, that funding is good and not funding is bad or anything like that. But I'm curious how that decision came about for you and why you decided to go that route. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a more thoughtful answer. But the honest answer is decided to go that route because we were in a place where we were growing. We were profitable, but by a slim margin, just because we were supporting our team. We were, you know, we had bootstrapped from day one. We didn't take on any external funding. You know, I didn't self-fund because I didn't have any money. So like, you know, every, every dollar in was, was all we had. And we were in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, me and my co-founders, Colin and Eric, and especially at the time, I think it was end of 2012, it was just a really frothy time. Everyone that we knew raised money instead of asking kind of like people would, you know, ask what, who your business, what your business is, you tell them and instead of saying, what do you do? Or, you know, what are, blah, blah, blah. They would say, how much have you raised and from who? So it was one of those, it was kind of the ecosystem we were in. And we got really lucky. I got connected to someone who, through a client of Zirtual's, who really liked our culture and kind of the vision behind the company and pretty quickly offered to lead our Series A. And that happens like once in a million 
Uh, I didn't realize that because it was my first time fundraising. So I was like, epic. And then that made it, you know, the the rest of the deal really easy to close out because in fundraising, if you have a well-known lead, everybody else will just be like, awesome, sounds good. So the reason we fundraised is because we could. It wasn't super difficult. And at the moment, it seemed like it would solve all our problems because going from kind of hand-to-mouth bootstrapping, all of a sudden we have $2 million in the bank. Right. And then you, you, know, you went on to raise a total of $5.5 million over a few years. Did you later regret that, you know, given that you know, venture capital often makes us want to grow faster and makes us burn money because it's there and that's what it's used for? But given how things turned out, did you or do you have regrets or do you think it was the right call? <sighs> so it's hard. All of the mistakes that I've made have been incredible learning experiences. They've been incredibly hard learning experiences, but I wouldn't trade the learning I have now for anything. That being said, if I could keep that learning and make better choices, obviously I would, but that's not how the world works. I'd say if I was, and I have done this, I've um, talked to people that are starting similar businesses and they always want to know about raising money. And what I've said is, you know, we were not a venture backable business. We got venture backing, which happens often, but we were a services business. We had no technology component. Even over the three and a half years after raising money, we built very little technology. We grew really fast because part of the raising money and we had a really awesome product and we had pretty good word of mouth. And if we had uh, not raised money, we would have had to really restrict that growth. In the short term, that would have been quote unquote hard, but in the long term, it would have made for a much more sustainable company. And what happened, you know, now Zertral is still around. It's run by startups.com. They uh, kind of bought the assets and restarted it. It's doing well. And I think they have, they rebirthed it in, in the way that we originally did with, Hey, we're going to make this profitable. We're going to make this, you know, focused on, on a service to the customer. And for that type of business, I think that is the right way to go. If you're building new technology, if you you have to raise money because that's the only way it's going to get built, that makes total sense. But if you have a services business and people are paying you money for it, often you don't need to raise money. It seems nice in the short term, but it has a lot of long-term ramifications that people who are raising money for the first time often don't realize. And you grew from essentially zero employees to 400 in the matter, you know, a span of three or four years, depending on how you count. What was that like being, because you, you were pretty young at the time, right? Were you like early to mid 20s? Yeah, I was super young and I was very green. What was that like basically having a company with that many employees at that age? It felt exciting in vanity metric terms, but in, you know, it was, it was exhausting. It was super overwhelming being the CEO of a fast growing company when you don't have the experience. And also, I think also just emotional maturity. So I would say it was, it was both really fun and gratifying and an awesome experience in some ways. And it was very overwhelming in other ways. Yeah. Could you talk about, was there a time you can think of where you were overwhelmed as it was growing? Yeah. I mean, so it goes back to imposter syndrome. So we, we didn't grow up in a family that had a lot of money, didn't go to a fancy school, uh, you know, wasn't raised around 
businessmen where I learned all these things. So when I came to San Francisco and especially as we raised money and started growing and started getting a lot of press and kind of tech darling status, I felt like a um, giant imposter. I, I say I have a blue collar chip on my shoulder that has lessened over the years. But at that time when I was 25 was very intact. And so instead of asking for help and being vulnerable and open and saying, Hey, you know, what's going on here? I felt like I had to figure everything out on my own. And I think that was, you know, because I felt like if I asked for help, people would be like, ha, we knew you didn't know what you were doing. Like, get out of here, Hick. But that actually made for a very lonely experience where as a 25 year old who didn't have a lot of practical reward experience, I I made a bunch of mistakes and so many of the mistakes when I look back were things that now more seasoned, I'm like, oh, you know, it's, that's not reinventing the wheel. There's solutions for that. So I think that's kind of one of the, the biggest pain points, at least that I experienced. Yeah, I, I feel you. I resonate with that phrase, blue collar chip on your shoulder, because I, I'm also, I mean, I, what's funny is I grew up in the East Bay area, but I had nothing to do with the startup scene. My dad worked construction. Uh, my mom raised us with four kids, you know, and I, I like to say I grew up solidly working class. I had no ins with people in the Silicon Valley. And so when I started doing startups, it's, it really is a thing, you know, that, that, that kind of weighs on you. I'm curious, it, part of this story that, that's come up, so I have an assistant producer now and she did some research and, and read some articles and listened to interviews that you've done. And it sounds like there was a turning point with Zirtual when you switched from contractors to employees and that, that things started turning there. Can you talk us through that? What Was that a decision you made? Did you have to make it? And, and what were the ramifications of that? So we thought we had to make it. Um, This was during the time where a lot of the on-demand gig work companies were starting to get fined or have lawsuits from the Department of Labor. And we looked at this, talked to some lawyers and we're like, you know, at this point we have maybe a hundred contractors. And the fear was that we were going to get someone was going to say, hey, you're misclassifying your workers. We didn't think we were, but we there's a 20-point test that you can do on the, IR, uh, I think it's the IRS website, and it's incredibly strict. And so you're like, ooh, geez, you know, maybe we should rethink the way we classify our workers and go from contractors to employees. Another driving thing behind this was we had amazing people on our team and they loved our mission. They loved the vision. They used to say they were ble- they'd bleed virtual blue. And they wanted to be part of the quote unquote team. They wanted to have the option to get stock. They wanted to be employees. They wanted to have the option to get benefits. So we made a call that was based a lot more on what we thought was the quote unquote right thing to do. And we did that without thoroughly thinking through the financial ramifications over the next few years. We were using an outsourced CFO firm that one of our investors uh, recommended to us. And I think that was one of the biggest mistakes we made at Zirtual. They were really, really bad. And again, when you go to this imposter syndrome, I was working with the partner who was a CFO and had his MBA and yada, yada. And I was an English literature dropout. He was like 27 at the time. And we, he would send over the P&Ls and I would go through them in my apartment. And I'd be like, these don't make sense. Like, I'm no genius, but 
And so again, saying things like that, I'm like, huh? So I would be like, well, he must know what he's doing. Like he has this firm, these fancy investors suggested him. But finally, at some point I was, went to our board. I was like, these don't make sense. These don't add up. And they looked at them and they were like, oh yeah, like literally he's doing math wrong. So I'm like, well, what do I do? And they're like, well, you should get rid of him. And here's another interim CFO firm. So that was a huge mistake. And I mean, at the end of the day, I'll tell you one thing. It taught me a lot about finance. It also taught me just because I could balance my checkbook. I kind of thought, well, it's cool. I'll, I'll be able to keep all the numbers, deal with them myself. And that is tragically untrue. But yeah, so so we wanted to do the right thing and make people employees, and we didn't really think through those repercussions. In retrospect, if I had to do it again, I would have changed our business model so we could keep people as contractors. It would have allowed us to actually pay them more as contractors, and it would have made us be able to keep that kind of 50% margin we originally had. Yeah, that sounds that's really tough. I I've been you know talking to startup founders for for years as I was starting my own stuff, and I always say you know if you're going to start a tech company, you don't have to learn to code, but learn just enough that you know when someone's bullshitting you. And I feel the exact same way about finance. Finance is the same thing. I've never took a finance class in college, but I've read enough books that I can hopefully spot something. Just like you're saying, you knew you had a spidey sense that something was off. You know, and it's like, oh, you got to trust that that founder instinct on that. Absolutely. I think in terms of, yeah, those core competencies, like I think the way our education system sets us up is is woefully inadequate. Instead of taking calculus, you should be understanding how to manage a household budget, how to manage a business budget. And so I think there's, you know, there's the amazing part is now, no matter what your income level is, if you can get online, you have access to all the knowledge in the world. So as founders or would-be founders, it's really important to educate ourselves on the building blocks of whatever business we're in. If you're going to in the construction business, you should know the bolts, you know, understand what's going on there. If you're going to be in tech, you should get a working understanding of exactly know, know if someone's bullshitting you. And no matter what kind of business if you're in, you need to be able to, you always need to keep an eye on, on that bottom line. And so, you know, unfortunately, we know how this story ends. Virtual essentially, you know, went under and you, you sold the assets to startups.com. But can you take me to that moment when you realized that you had run out of money and you needed to lay everyone off and shut the company down? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty horrible. Um, we realized when we kicked out the one firm, brought in, finally brought in a director of finance internally who was amazing. And within three weeks, she came back to me and she was like, we're running out of money. And I was like, oh no. And so I went to my board, I went to all of our investors, told them and they were like, huh, okay, well, you guys need to raise a bridge. I was like, all right. So got that all set up, did the back of the napkin, figuring out once we brought on the director of finance, she kind of was like, listen, 70% of the plans are, we'll never really make enough money to justify them. But 30% of them, what we call virtual for business, they're the winners. We need to do a massive restructuring. We need to get rid of all the personal plans. We need to focus on business. We had the everything built out. We went to the board. We we're like, all right, we need a million and a half to do this. Here's the timeline. Everybody said, okay. And then the true, um, one of the VCs, the same one that recommended the fantastic CFO firm, they said, actually, instead of giving you the $750,000, we said, we're going to tranche it in three um, segments. And we're going to wait till everybody else's money hits the bank before we put it in. 
And one thing about investors, and actually I'm realizing this is a lot of life, that people tend to, they're signaling you are less likely to go in a restaurant if there's no one there. If there's a line, you're more likely to stand in it. Um, investors are very similar, if not even more than the way we see that in the rest of the world. So the moment someone kind of got cold feet, some other investors were like, ooh, well, you know, we're not going to put in our money until um, this firm's money is in first. So it was a, a catch-22. And I talked to one of our biggest shareholders the person that was their representative on the board who had no business being there and later actually kind of came to me and apologized, said, yeah, you know what? We have just enough in the bank to, you know, pay out this final payroll, pay off the taxes. I think you should just shut everything down. And at this point, I was so kind of shell-shocked and just absolutely emotionally, mentally, spiritually exhausted I was like, okay, well, again, he, he knows more than me, so this is what we'll do. And trying to do right by the people by making sure that we like didn't keep open any longer because if we did, we might not be able to pay them everything. So that's when I, you know, we spent four days trying to figure something out. Nothing came through, and that's when I had to send a layoff email at like 11 p.m. Sunday or 1 a.m. I forgot when it was. I remember being in the office. Yeah. So you look back and if I had it to do over, I would tell the guy who gave me that suggestion that that was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I would have spent that week. I probably still would have had to lay most people off, but I would have spent that week actually going around to a bunch of different firms saying, here's our numbers, here's our business. Like, let's do a down round and we're going to uh, fix the company and focus on business. Well, I mean, that sounds devastating. It sounds like one of the low points of your life, perhaps. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that sounds incredible. And you had to lay off, you mentioned it somewhere that you had to lay off your mom and brother. Is that, yeah. Is that true? Yeah, they oh were, they worked with me. So luckily we are a close-knit family and got through that. But yeah, it was super, super bad. Yeah. And there was there was obviously a lot of negative negativity coming at you after that. I'm sure from employees and I even think weren't there like articles on TechCrunch and other places that were just kind of talking about the big flame out. Like yep. how did you handle that? Obviously that sucks and it's people dragging you through the mud or whatever, but did you did you just kind of black out, go offline for months? Did you fight it? You know, what was that like? No, I definitely went offline because my whole thing was, you know, it's not going to help me. It doesn't benefit me to hear a bunch of people tell me I'm shitty. Like I already feel that. So it's like I'm covered there. And I think honestly, probably it was just like self-preservation kicked in. So I went offline for several months after we laid everybody off. I, me and my co-founders and my brother who wasn't getting paid and a few other awesome OGs from the company spent the next few months trying to make the transference to startups.com as, as simple as possible. So we kept working, getting, cleaning things up, doing the best we could. And yes, that was kind of how I handled it. I, I didn't really, after the, the three months was up, I kind of laid on the floor of my house at the time and just, yeah, didn't, didn't do much. And then after a few months of that, like I didn't have any money. And I was like, crap, I really have to get back to work. So peeled myself up and got back on, on the saddle, so to speak. But it was, it was very devastating. And it was absolutely, you know, just like, hands down, one of the low points of my life. Um, and I think the reason was because 
I I knew how many people it it impacted and that's what just crushed me. Like the investors, like everybody else, even it's but like the people that we were such a tight knit group and the people that were part of of Zertual were were like an extension of our family. That was like the hardest part. I can only imagine. I, I literally, I'm speechless because, like, I've gone through hard things, but I've never, I've never had to do that. And I, and so many people will, you know, will never have to in their entire entrepreneurial career. How do you then? So you go offline. How do you even recover from that? Because mentally, you know, you. It sounds like you were just even before it was happening. There was just loads and loads of stress because you're growing this company. Loads of stress as it's kind of going down and then this whole big thing happens, you go offline, but there has to be a healing process, right? Of taking a year off and kind of an off. I mean, I know you were working and stuff, but what did you do to try to kind of heal yourself to be able to get back on that horse and start what you're working on now, which is Avra? So I did kind of a a deep dive. I, I started reading a lot, which is kind of how I approach most things and figuring out I knew that this was either going to break me or I was going to figure out a way through it. And I didn't want it to break me. I think one of the things that actually kept me going was the sense of I have to make this right at some point in the future in my life. And I still actually feel that very strongly. So I was, you know, there were definitely times where I would be in the shower and I was just like, damn, like I could just slip my wrist and then not have to deal with this anymore. But that good old Presbyterian guilt, I was like, yeah, but then that would really hurt my family and my friends and, you know, some of my employees. So that wouldn't be fair to do it to them. So let's, let's try to, let's try to get through this. Let's try to figure out a way to make this up to people at some point. And, and I always, which sounds really morbid, but I actually think was helpful. Um, I always told myself, like, I've never, I've never lived abroad. And I was like, just figure out how to pay the bills, figure out how to maybe make this up to some people. And then you've never lived abroad. So you've got to go and at least try those three things. And worst case scenario, if you can't do either of those, then you can always kill yourself after you live abroad. And that actually got me through like the first few months. And after that, you know, after the the really dark part passes, then you start to kind of kind of see through the the mist like after the news cycle passed after whatever else happened I don't know who the next like target was in Silicon Valley I was super lucky I went through a really bad breakup a few months later which was amazing especially since we lived together I was like awesome so later at that point it was almost funny I was like I just this is a, I was like I, I literally laughed I was like this could not be any so I kind of took it as a sign I was like all right well I don't have a house anymore I'm San Francisco has been really good to me in some ways and also been terrible. So I was like, well, I wanted to live abroad and I got super lucky, randomly got an offer from this company called Rome to head up their operations and they had co-living locations all over the country. So they were like, part of this Marin is, is you'll have to go and live at these different co-living places and, you know, uh, improve their operational city. I was like, literally I'm on the next flight. So I paired all my belongings down to suitcases flipped San Francisco off as I was flying out and went and lived abroad for about a year, which was wonderful. And then I also think just getting to see that the world is a lot bigger than the place you're in was pretty groundbreaking to me. 
I didn't travel a lot as a kid outside of the States and to actually see how big the world is and see how different people are and to see, you know, what real struggle looks like. I was like, Oh my gosh. I was like, you snooty bee. Like, how dare you complain about this stuff? Like, don't feel sorry for yourself. Like you've got nothing to complain about. I think that was one of the the most transformational parts of my life was actually kind of just, just like shaking myself out of it by being able to see how big the world is and both how much opportunity and then also how much suffering. And it really puts your own drama into a uh, contrast. Yeah. Sounds like a really powerful way to reset. I think that travel has, can be such a therapeutic thing in that respect. Oh, absolutely. And so you took this time to recover and then you, you got back on the horse and you started Avra Talent folks can check it out, avrittalent.com. Your H1 is hire the best talent, regardless of geography. We connect employers with the top 5% of remote professionals tested and vetted for your specific needs. So when I read that, I think of it as like a contingency recruiting service. And I've used those at previous places that, that I've worked. Can you talk to me about how you're different? Yeah. So after I kind of did a postmortem on what happened in virtual, one of the biggest things that came back was that we had and I had made some poor hiring choices along the way. And I actually consider when I think of hiring or recruiting, I actually think it's it has to do with anyone that is that is on the bus with you. So that includes investors, that includes advisors, that includes employees. So just out of greenness, we had brought on some people that that weren't great. And one of the biggest reasons I went back thinking that was we didn't run a thorough process. We were really good at recruiting our, our virtual assistants. We had this incredibly thorough process. I think only like half a percent got through and were hired. But when it came to our COO or the outsourced CFO firm or you know some people on our tech team, the the process I ran was non-existent. So I did, and I, after virtual, I talked to some people, some founders while I was uh, traveling abroad. I did a head of operations interim stint at Calm, the meditation app. I talked to the guys there and I was like, yeah, you know, I just must be an idiot. I don't know how to hire. And they were like, no, everybody actually has the same problem. We've made a bunch of bad hires too. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I could take the process, like the structure that we did with recruiting our, our virtual assistants and apply that across different roles. And that I started doing that as a consultant. And then I decided to spin up an agency, which is Offer Talent. And the way we differ, I would say, from a contingency recruiter is kind of twofold. We're very focused on alignment. We only work with startups and companies whose culture and mission we can get behind. And then we charge a... So we charge a percentage of a placement fee, but we also charge an upfront $5,000 retainer. And I started this from day one because one of the biggest problems I've realized in contingency recruiting is incentives are misaligned. So contingent recruiters incentive is to get you someone who's the highest paid as fast as possible, because if they don't get you that person before you hire them somewhere else, then they don't make any money. And that's kind of one of the reasons that industry is so um, fractured and, and can have such a negative connotation versus the way I talked to when I talked to founders, I was like, listen, we're going to do the work. We're going to act kind of like your internal recruiting team. Each search we put several hundred hours, human hours into. So you're going to put this retainer down. If we find you the person that you hire, then you're going to pay us 
let's say 15% of their base and that 5,000 will roll into that. And if we don't, if you bump into the next hire on the subway, that's amazing. We want you to find the right person. It doesn't matter how you come about them, but you're still going to pay us for the time we spent. And that model's worked really well for us. We have four core values, alignment being the first one. And then in the last three years, as Avra has grown, we've actually uh, gotten more and more focused on helping companies recruit fully remote talent. So these are fully remote employees from engineering to digital marketing, to operations, to product, to customer support. And I think that is where we are the best in the world. So that's really where our focus is. And you've talked a lot about hiring and you've obviously had to hire a lot of people. And you mentioned somewhere that you kind of have this this system and way of thinking about building a, a great company and it's to bring on the best people, connect them to something bigger than themselves, empower them to do their thing, hire and fire according to company values. So I want to dig into that first piece, which is bring on the best people. How do you do that? People listening to this podcast, there's a lot of founders out there who maybe are hiring their first ever salesperson, their first customer support rep, or maybe they're hiring their 10th or 20th employee. What's the the Cliff's Notes version of how do you bring on the best people? So this is one of the reasons that I love remote recruiting so much, because if you're trying to bring on the best person in, say, San Francisco, you are competing with some of the well best funded, um, you know, highest paying companies in in the world. So you have to, you're, you're kind of fighting a war versus if you are hiring in Boise, it's a little bit easier, but maybe you don't have, there's not as much talent that you're looking for, maybe with specific skills. I'm talking about obviously technology companies and startups. So with remote recruiting, and this goes with anything, you can run this, whether you're hiring in office in San Francisco or remote, but at the end of the day, you just have to think of it the exact same way you think of a sales funnel. You need to get enough at the top of the funnel, and then you need to filter them effectively through several steps to get down to the five to seven candidates who really matter, who then you run through you know, a more detailed process, which would include test projects, uh, references, cultural interviews, yada, yada. But my favorite way of hiring is casting a really, really wide net and then setting up five to seven steps in that funnel so that the best people can shine through. So an example would be at my a new startup I'm, I'm spinning out, I've been recruiting for a founding product person and a founding growth person. And I would say at the top of the funnel, we've probably gotten five to 600 applicants on both sides. And then we've set different tests, so to speak, at different parts of the funnel. And these cover the core values that we hold important. They cover the skills, both soft and hard skills that are important for this role. And as people go through different stages and the funnel gets smaller and smaller, the best people start to really shine through. Can you give an example of like one or two of those stages? Is it like video, you know, recording 90 second video of yourself or taking an exam or something? So the way I like to think about it is just thinking what hiring normally is and then doing the exact opposite. So most companies approach hiring, they post a role and people submit their resume. And then it's up to the hiring manager to go through all these resumes. And resumes are literally a terrible way of assessing fit. So it goes back a stage. You want to figure out what is the role, what matters the most. You don't say, I want to hire a digital marketing manager. You say, this is the jobs or jobs I want this person to do. So I want them to 
own our ad spend. I want them to be able to write great copy. I want them to be able to hire and manage designers. And I want them to be very analytical and be able to create reports. You can actually test that in different stages of the funnel. So an example would be, we have people submit resumes, but we don't even look at them until maybe stage five. So instead, we would have three paragraph style questions that would be the first stage of the recruitment process. And the very first one, which we include on all hiring is, what are you looking for in a role? And what what honestly draws you to this company and this role? And if people don't fill that out in a meaningful way, in an honest way, we immediately disqualify them. Because if you want people that actually care about your product, your vision, then they should be able to articulate that. We also ask them to, we ask them a few other questions, and then we actually look at their writing and their communication, which is incredibly important for most roles, especially ones that are remote. But like going back to the digital marketing example, you want someone who can write well. So it doesn't matter if I look at their resume and they used to work for Apple or Postmates or you know one of these darlings where I'm like, oh, they worked at Airbnb, they must be good. That is not an indicator of success. So instead, I actually look at the work they do. And then after that, we would, you know, yay or nay them. Someone on interviewer would just glance and push through the top 20%. And then they would go on to a either another question. Um, and we test for responsiveness is a really big one. And then we'll get them into a phone screen where we're talking about uh, specific examples to understand, do they actually understand the role? How have they performed in their previous roles? A lot of those open-ended, like, tell me about a time questions. And then after that, there's another longer test project. So we always suggest to clients, we do this ourselves, set up a paid test project, something that you actually need done. Be sure to pay for a person's time. That's really important. Nothing is more powerful than seeing how people work with you and how they engage with you. And then if they do well through that, you usually do a second layer of interviews, which have to do with your team, with who would be their supervisor. And then after that, we always highly recommend references, checking references, both given references and back channel references. That's the one thing I tell founders. If you do anything, just check references. If that's the only takeaway, because some of the worst hires I ever made years later, talking to people who maybe had worked with them, there was always a pattern where it was like, you know, maybe they'd gotten lucky and gotten some good jobs that had like high name worth of the company and they had floated on other people's success, or maybe they didn't have the skills, but they were great talkers. And if I had have just spoken to a few references and the way we do references is we think of people you worked for, people you worked with and people who worked for you, because you can often somebody, you can trick one of those subsets, like maybe your boss thinks you're great, but the people who work with you and work under you think you're terrible and vice versa. So it's really important to get all three of those categories. And from there, you usually start to get a pretty good holistic view of a candidate. Very cool. Yeah, that's kind of a mini clinic in a, in a hiring process. I, I really like that. I mean, I like most of the stuff you said there, but the right well piece is something that I really focused on. Even when hiring developers, that was a thing I was super, super picky about. And following instructions. I mean, that's a huge one too. It's amazing how few people follow instructions. And then also just, you know, if somebody really vibes with your company and your culture, this is why I say when you're writing your job description, let your company, let your culture, let your, your entire, your flavor of weird shine through because the right job description 
it will scare most people off, but it will really attract the people that are like minds. And that's what you want versus a generic plan job description. Awesome. And you're you're talking about this topic in a couple months in MicroConf Minneapolis. Yeah. So if, if you're listening to this and you're not coming to MicroConf Growth yet, we should think about getting a ticket to hear a 40-minute talk from Marin on this topic. And if folks want to keep up with you in the meantime, over the next couple months, you're Marin Kate on Twitter and Avra Talent everywhere and avratalent.com. Yep, absolutely. Sounds great. Well, thanks again, Marin. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Absolutely. If after listening to that, you have a question for me or you have a question for Marin Kate, I could invite her back on the show if you wanted to learn more about how she hires, thinks about hiring, really anything from her experience. You can email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. We also have a voicemail line, 888-801-9690. Subscribe to us by searching for startups in any podcatcher. And of course, we have a full transcript of each episode available within a few weeks of the episode going live. So thanks so much for listening again this week. It's great to have you here. I'll see you next time.